Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to John chapter 3. John 3 will be in the last part of the chapter this morning, so we'll start in verse 20. I have been the best man in a wedding twice in my life. Um, Once was for my best friend a week after I got married. The the first time, though, was for one of my roommates in college. Um, I think I might have told this story here, but if if I have, just bear with me, because I'm getting to that point where I'm running out of personal stories, so I just tell the same ones over and over. Um... So, so my first roommate in college was a guy I went to high school with. Um, we, we weren't really close friends in high school, but we were associates in high school. We were both going to the same college, and so we said, hey, let's try to room together. So they let us room together. And um, we roomed together in the same room the first two years of, of college. Um, and then he moved off campus, and I continued living on campus. So we basically, like, that ended there. Our friendship didn't really continue beyond that. Um, he started coming to the church that I went to, though, in, in college, and, and is still there today, from what I understand. Um, and so a year or two after I graduated, after I was in seminary, he contacted me and he said, Hey, I'm getting married. Will you be my best man? So I said, Sure, that, that'd be fun. So um, I, I organized the bachelor party. It was a camping trip um, to the same place that us and some friends had gone camping before. Um, I, I did all the stuff that a best man is supposed to do. Um, I prepared my, my, my toast for the reception. And then the wedding day came. And um, so all the stuff happens that day. I, I serve him in every way he needs that day. I take the gift that he has for his bride to her and I bring her gift back to him. Then comes the wedding. I'm not spontaneous at all, if you know me. I'm very by the books, planned out, like, like if anything goes wrong in that plan, it just messes my brain up. Um, and so we are standing in this little private room about to walk out on the stage like 60 seconds from going out there, the groom's party um, and the minister. Um, the, and then the bridal party will obviously walk in. So we're standing there and one of the groomsmen looks at me and says, hey, you should lose the ring. And of course, I'm planned out, so I'm like, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, bad idea, bad idea. All the other groomsmen then say, yeah, you should do it, that'd be so funny. So I look at the groom, and the groom is for this idea. And so I'm like, okay, we got 30 seconds to figure this out, so let's do it. So the plan is, we walk into the sanctuary, and the way the sanctuary is set up, the baptistry's on the right, not in the middle. So we walk out and we walk past the baptistry and I'm supposed to just set the ring on the little counter there at the baptistry. There's glass so it's not gonna fall in, don't worry. And so that's what we do. Walk in and 
walk over and stand in line. Well, the wedding commences, and I'm sitting there the whole time like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, this is going to be bad. It's going to be bad. And it comes time in the wedding. The minister says, may I have the ring? And so it's supposed to be in my shirt pocket. So I reach in. Do you have the ring? I look at the groomsmen beside me. And they go down the whole line doing that little thing. And the bridal party is freaking out. Like, what is going on? Right? You had one job. And the guy at the end is like, oh, hey, here it is. And walks it up to us. So when I did that prank, when we were in the little back room, I looked at the groom for his approval. Why? Because I'm the best man. I'm the groom's servant. That's my job. And so if he's not for this, I'm not doing this. But if he is, then okay, let's do it. It's your wedding day. As the best man, it was my job to take care of the groom, both before the wedding day and on the wedding day. It was my job to make sure the groom had all he needed and that he didn't have to worry about anything on his wedding day. And John the Baptist is going to use similar language here for his connection to Jesus. So let's read it. John 3, starting verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing, unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourself bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Verses 22 through 24 kind of serve as a transition. We were there with Nicodemus in Jerusalem. They um, transitioned to the countryside. They began a baptism ministry. Now, it's important to notice Jesus didn't baptize anybody because if you read this, it might, might sound like he did. But just later at chapter 4, verse 2, it says Jesus didn't baptize anyone, only his disciples did. So he's there in the wilderness baptizing. John's still doing his thing. And people come to John and are talking to him. And they say, hey, everybody that's wanting to be baptized is now going to Jesus and his disciples. They're not coming to you. In other words, hey, we've got issues. 
We've got issues. Nobody's coming to our church anymore. They're all going to the church down the road, the Jesus church. John is being confronted with the same thing that most preachers at some point deal with. God's doing a lot of things at the church down the road, not at yours. And when that happens, a preacher can respond one of two ways. They can be jealous, try and compete and steal people away from other churches, or they can rejoice that God is working in that church and that God is saving people, God is growing people, God is doing wonderful things there. You know, there's a lot of really great pastors here in um, Tiff County. Um, I, I, I try to make it a thing that regularly I'm praying for all of them by name, or I may fall into that temptation. That man, God's doing a lot of things at that church. God's doing a lot of things at that church. God's doing a lot of things at our church. But I, I may be tempted to think, man, they saw 20 people get baptized in one Sunday. And, and I might get jealous of that. And it would be sinful of me to try to steal away people from Brookfield or Crossview or Northside or, or wherever. Pastors must be committed to shepherding the flock God gave them. Whether that's a church of 50 people or a church of 1,000. And that, that's the thing, is that um, pastors who shepherd big churches, you could fit all of them on an airplane in the United States. Pastors who, who shepherd small churches, you could fit them in a baseball stadium. Like, that's how many there are. And pastors must be faithful with the church they have. The, the issue of comparison, though, is not just a pastor thing. It's not just a church thing. You, you will deal with comparison in every sphere of your life. So maybe you're a student. And you think, man, my classmate got that scholarship that I wanted. That, that my classmate got on the team and I didn't. Why is that? Maybe you, you have it happen in family. You know, I wish I had the money to go on vacation like that family. Uh, that, that family doesn't work half as hard as we do, yet they have so much more money than us. They are not in debt up to their ears. What, why is this injustice happening? Maybe it's at work. You know, my coworker got a raise and I didn't. My coworker got the promotion I wanted. Why is this injustice happening? You know, in our day and age, if you have social media, this will happen in ways you can't even imagine. Because on social media, everyone shares their best moments of their life. Well, they used to. Now it's just mostly political rants and fake news. But they used to share all the best moments of their life. They'd share smiling pictures, they'd share vacation photos, they'd share all kinds of things that their kids were doing. It was that thing. It was the ESPN highlight reel of everybody's life. And nobody shared pictures when they were eating TV dinners for, for dinner. They shared the, you know, the filet mignon, but, but, but not the TV dinners. No, nobody shared, you know, selfies of themselves crying themselves to sleep at night. Like, they, they didn't do that. And so when you spend hours a day on social media, as most Americans do, and all you see is the highlight reel of people's life, what happens? Well, you start to look at your own life and you think, man, my life is not just perfect all the time. My life is not just smiles and vacations all the time. What's wrong? You start to struggle with jealousy and comparison. So how do you respond to comparison when, when that sort of thing happens in you? Well, how does John respond to it? What's he say? He says in verse 
29, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm his friend. Jesus is the bridegroom. I'm the friend. When they come and talk to John, that's what he says. He says, look, a person can't receive anything unless it's given to him from heaven. Nothing that a person has is theirs unless it's given to them from heaven, verse 27. John is content. He's content with the ministry that he has been given. He's content with people leaving him to go to Jesus because that's the purpose of his life. That the secret to comparison, to comparing yourself to other people and wishing you had what other people have is contentment, being content. It's understanding that everything you have has been given to you by God and everything you don't have has been withheld by God for his good purposes. Your coworker got that raise instead of you by God's good purpose. Your classmate got that scholarship instead of you by God's good purpose. That family has more money than yours by God's good purpose. Maybe you think, well, that isn't right. I deserve those things. And no, you don't. You, you don't. You must understand the depth of your sin. You don't deserve anything because of your sin. You are a transgressor against God. All you really deserve is hell. Everything you have, everything you get is from heaven. It's by the gracious hand of God. Everything. But more than that, more than just being content, it's understanding your place in the story. It's understanding your place in the wedding. It's, it's understanding that. Verse 28 and 29. You, you, look, you heard me say I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him re rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Like... Remember a few weeks ago when we looked at chapter 1, John said, look, I'm not the Christ. I'm not him. I, I, I don't take glory in being him. There'd be no hope for me in that. I'd die in a few years and all of it would have been for nothing. But uh, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. So imagine you're at a wedding. And the groom's party's up on the stage. The bridesmaids have all come down. The door's open and here comes the bride in. She's walking in, she's stunning, she's beautiful, she's glowing. Everybody's watching her come down the aisle. The groom is in tears as he watches his bride come down the aisle. And then the best man's over here. And he steps around the groom, gets in front of the groom, and begins to make inappropriate gestures at the bride. What's going to happen for that dude? Well, if I'm the groom, I'm pushing him off the stage and saying, get out of here, and the next groomsman is taking his place. Like, that, that's what's happening. So in another scenario, imagine John is dealing with comparison that Jesus is getting all of his people, and so he goes over where Jesus and his disciples are, and he says, hey, I baptize better than Jesus does. Why don't you come let me do it? Hey, 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 uh, I've been preaching longer than Jesus has. Why don't you come let me preach to you? That's essentially the same thing as a best man stepping in front of the groom and, and making inappropriate gestures at the bride. And John recognizes he's the best man. He's not the, he's not the groom. He's the best man. And, and once the bride and the groom are together, the best man's job is essentially finished. He'll, he'll make a speech at the reception probably but aside from that he, he's done 
because the bride and the groom are together. The purpose of the wedding has happened. That, that's the point of this story. That's the point of history, that Jesus would come and save his people. That's the point of history. That's the point of our lives. So can I just be real clear to all of us? You're not the point of the wedding. Jesus is. Whatever you do in life, it's to make the wedding more beautiful. The, the world and history are not a movie with you as the main character. Like, Jesus is the main character. You're simply a background extra making the movie look more beautiful. That's, that's what's going on. So, lest we think this makes life not worth living, see what John says in verse 29. The bridegroom hears the voice of the bride. The bridegroom's friend hears the bridegroom's voice, and he rejoices greatly. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. This joy of mine is complete. My joy is full that the bridegroom's getting to, to have his bride. That, that, that's my joy. Jesus is far more important than John will ever be. Why? Because Jesus is the point of history. He's the point of our lives. His joy is complete in people leaving him to go to Jesus. Because Jesus is the point of the universe. Fullness of joy in our lives is found in making much of Jesus, not making much of ourselves. If your life is about making much of yourself, you will never be satisfied. You will always want more. Hear the words of uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low and how I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We often read that as, I can do anything I set my mind to through Christ who strengthens me, but that's not what it's saying. It, it's saying, I can be content in any circumstance through Christ because he's my satisfaction, not my circumstance. No matter what life sends your way, he's enough. He's enough in the greatest moments of joy, and he's enough in the deepest tragedies of life. So John, in response to this, says in verse 30, really famous verse, he must increase, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase. Jesus must be seen as greater and greater and greater. We must be seen as less and less and less. And that's actually good for us. Despite what we're told, we're not that awesome. The more and more we try to be awesome, the less and less awesome we will be. The point of your life is to get yourself out of the way and allow Jesus to be made great in the eyes of the people around you. Is that what you want from your life? Or are you really thinking that's ridiculous and you're going to keep trying to make yourself look great? John recognizes he's not awesome. 
Now, he could have taken great pride in himself. If anyone has the right to take pride in himself, it's John, because Jesus later is going to say that John the Baptist is the greatest man ever born of a woman, like the greatest person ever born. It's not Noah, it's not Moses, it's not David or Adam, or Adam wasn't born of a woman, but it's, it's not any of those people. It's John the Baptist. He's the greatest guy ever born. He could have held that over everybody's head, but he didn't. He didn't. He decreased. He stepped into the background and let Jesus shine. It's interesting. In the Gospel of John, John the Baptist vanishes after that statement. It's like he says, he must increase and I must decrease. And then he pulls the curtain over his story. And he's gone. John is referenced later in, in, in John. John the Baptist is mentioned by people, but himself, he's never in the story again. That's the last time. It was his job. J John is going to get arrested, we know, from other Gospels. He gets arrested. He gets beheaded by Herod. But John took great joy in decreasing and vanishing from the story. He knew it wasn't his story. It was the story of Jesus. He knew that simply the, he was simply the friend of the bridegroom. He was the best man. It was his job to get everything ready for the groom to meet his bride and then get out of the way and let it happen. In that, he had true greatness. True greatness is not gaining accolades and becoming famous. Jesus says that to be great, you have to serve. You have to become the lowest of the lows. And that's what John did because he realized that the one he's serving is far greater than himself. He realizes that Jesus is that God from Isaiah 42 whose, who, who, whose glory he will give to no one else because nobody else deserves it. So who is the groom? John sums it up in verses 31 through 36. Um, we don't know if this is a section continuing what John the Baptist said or if, or if John the writer took a moment to just explain who Jesus was. I tend to think the second one probably, but... Um, it's a packed statement, and you don't really know what all he's saying until you actually sit down and look at it. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So I think, I think John is saying three things about Jesus here. First, Jesus is greater because of his heavenly origin. He's greater because he came from heaven. That's, verses, that's verse 31. He, he, he came from above. Those on earth come from the earth. Jesus is worthy of all glory because he's from heaven. He's always existed. He's been there at every moment of history. John the Baptist and you and me, we're all from the earth. We are made of dust, just dust. From dust we came and to dust we shall return. And how incredible of a God he is that he would take dust particles and, and, and make us people from them. He would take dust 
and make every single face here. How incredible of a God is that, that dust that we stomp under our feet and we just kick aside and we sweep up, he takes it and makes people out of it. That, that, that's who Jesus is. That's the God we worship. He's far greater than us because, frankly, we never would have thought to give life to dust. Second, he's greater because of his heavenly testimony, because of what he says, verses 32 through 34. He bears witness of what he's seen and heard. He gives testimony to what God has said and to the truth of God. Jesus came bearing witness to what he had seen and heard. That's the kind of relationship between the Father and the Son, where Jesus has shown all things by the Father, and then he tells them to us. Not that he didn't know all those things, but it's just how it worked. The Father shows the Son, and the Son shows us. That's how the Bible works. You're going to see when we look at Revelation in a few weeks. Revelation 1, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave to him, that he gave to the angel, that the angel gave to John. It's that process. Jesus is worthy because he actually has something to say. He has a testimony to give. Everyone on earth right now seems to think they have something to say. Just in 2020, everybody thinks they're an expert on how to live in a pandemic and an expert on COVID-19 and an expert on racism and an expert on political systems and so many other things. And the majority of the time, their opinions get proved wrong in a couple days. Most of us don't actually have anything worthy of saying we should all learn more self-control and how to have a filter sometimes. Jesus is the only one that has anything worthwhile to say. That's why he's greater than us. That's why I preach the Bible and not my opinion. Because he's the one who's got something to say, not me. So he's greater because he came from heaven. He's greater because he gives testimony from heaven. And he's greater, verses 35 and 36, because he has authority from heaven. He has authority Jesus has ownership of all things. That is, every corner of the universe, left and right and up and down, every planet, every star, it's all under his rule. Every nation is under his rule, every kingdom is under his rule, and every life is under his rule, including everyone that I'm looking at. We're all under his rule. He owns us. So with him having that dominion, people can do one of two things. They can believe in him and have eternal life. Verse 36, they can believe in him and have eternal life. Or they can not obey him and not see life. We'll get to what that means in just a second. But it's the same as verse, chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. The, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. That the light is coming into the world and they'd rather love the darkness. They'd rather keep loving the darkness. So the light comes, you can either believe in it and have eternal life or you can run back to the darkness and, and remain in darkness. So there's a few issues that come up with verse 36. First of all, do people, because if you believe in the Son, you have life. If you don't obey the Son, you don't have life. So some people take that and say, um, you won't have conscious life forever if you reject Jesus. Some people's view of hell is that you just cease to exist 
you, you no longer exist. All the people who go to heaven live forever. All the people who don't go to heaven just vanish. They're just asleep forever. Um, that's, that's just not true from biblical witness. It, it's, a, it's a lake of fire forever and ever. That They shall not have spiritual life is the point of the Bible. Eternity in hell will be like, if you took the most, the, the most brutal moment of death for somebody and you drug it out forever and ever and ever and ever, that's what hell's like. It's like dying for all of eternity. Secondly, what does it mean? Why does it say you have to believe in him to be saved, but you have to not obey him to be lost? What does that mean? Well, um, John 6.40 later on is going to say the will of God is that you believe. Like the command God has given in the book of John is believe. So if you don't believe, what are you doing? You disobey it. And then finally, God's wrath. The wrath of God remains on him who does not obey. People don't like the idea of, of, a, of the wrath of God, do they? Because in our culture, the worst thing you could, you could do for someone is be mean toward their sin. That's the worst thing you could do for someone. But, the, but God's wrath is very much a biblical idea. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. God's wrath will be poured out on all those who don't believe because they are in their sin. They will not have the sins covered by faith in Jesus. They will suffer his wrath forever. That maybe some of us that maybe some of the people we know. So do you believe in Jesus as the substitute for your sins? Not, not just as a historical guy who lived, but as the substitute for your sins. Understand, he's the owner of the universe. He, he's the owner of your destiny. You will either submit to him and live in joy with him, or you can reject him because you love darkness more than you love light and have no chance at life, but experience death forever. Which one do you want? Friend, Jesus is greater than you, and the only way you will ever find joy in your life is to decrease, get out of the way, and let him increase. Let's pray together. Father, Jesus must increase and we must decrease. And we pray that that would be our week. That we would get out of the way and let Jesus shine glorious. For he's the only one that deserves that. Lord, I pray that you would um, help us to change our perspective and, and learn that, that the joy in life is found in not making much of ourselves, but in making much of him. In Jesus' name. Amen.